uh, a, word of war- a word of warning, a word of warning, gang. Uh, there are certain elements that are going to be <laughs> heard in the following 45 minutes that uh, may be of questionable taste. That is, to those of you who uh, question taste and who realize that life itself is basically in poor taste, you may find all the rest of the stuff that comes along in fantastically good taste. You know, it's, it's, oh, you're constantly in a quandary when you're in showbiz, really. I mean, when uh, when you're being carried away and carried around on the crowd, on their shoulders, people cheering and yelling, demanding so much of we in showbiz, it gets very, very uh, difficult at times. And uh, since uh, this is one of those nights where it's very difficult for me to decide whether or not I'm going to bow to the demand of the public or to continue to do what I, in my deep soul, wish and know has to be done to clear up the problems of our commonwealth. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I've been getting a fantastic public demand to do some singing. And uh, I, I I can't explain this except to say, well, talent will out. That's about all I can say. And uh, being basically a modest person, I can only say, well, uh, I'm surprised that the people want to hear so much of my singing. In fact, one lady wrote with a shaky kind of a handwriting in purple ink on green stationery, says, dear Mr. Shepherd, my entire house comes to life when you sing. It just comes to life. Signed, Mrs. Alma Glockenspiel, Lennon, New Jersey. Well, I don't want to disappoint that lady, and there's been many others, so if you please... Uh, Al, please, uh, we'll bow to the public here for just a few moments, uh, and then we'll get down to business. Yeah. One of these things. You're going to miss me, honey. One of these things. Yes, somebody sings. Oh, thank you, Al. That's enough. That's enough. You just don't want to sate the public. Got to be very careful about that in this business. And, uh, and by the way, we'd uh, like to salute uh, a little development here in Johannesburg. And it, it explains some, maybe possibly, explains a mystery that has been bugging me recently. You know, I've been riding up and down this elevator here at this radio station since just before the fall of Rome. And, uh, you know, you get so that you know everything about the elevators. And you, you, you like anybody that uh, goes to a place uh, over a certain length of time, you get it's part of your home. It's part of your whole beat, you know? I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, the elevator, you just know it. Well, I have noticed recently, and, and, and now that I look back on it, it's been going on for some time. Have you noticed, Al, in the elevator that there are certain floors that this elevator never stops on? Look carefully. There are certain floors. For example, you never see the elevator here stop on the 14th floor. Now, I've been watching this very carefully. Now, now I I just bring this up because... uh, I read this little news note from the Associated Press in Johannesburg. Now, you, I've been in Johannesburg. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about Johannesburg, don't confuse it with Africa. I mean, Johannesburg can only be compared to, say, Chicago. It's a big, 
fantastic uh, industrial city, you know, giant buildings, skyscrapers, traffic jams, walk lights, the whole bit, you know. You're going down one of the main streets in Johannesburg. It's, it looks more like an American city than any city I've ever been in in Europe. It really looks American. You know, there's big department stores and elegant departments with escalators and elegant-looking people walking around and walk lights and parking meters and the whole business, you know. And so it's that kind of a city. Well, here's a note from uh, Johannesburg, AP. A new assistant manager of a hotel here, a major hotel, and it might even been the one I was staying in there, it was a big hotel, was puzzled. He just knew there, see? And that's, by the way, there's an old slogan, you know, among photographers. Do you know the slogan among photographers? It is this. It's, it's actually a statement of truth, policy, that if you're going to photograph a place, let's say you go to uh, Munich, or uh, let's say you go to uh, some place like uh, Copenhagen or something. Photograph that place the first three days you're there, because after that you will no longer see it. You'll become used to that great big white ceramic polar bear that's standing on top of a flagpole, whistling Dixie with a neon tail, you know, that holds a beer bottle aloft. And <laughs> you, the first five minutes, you'll say, "Oh my God, look at a bear!" And uh, if you don't take that picture, by the end of the third day, you, the, the bear is just part of the scene. You know, you, you know, with a bear, you know, you don't even notice it. And that's a fact. It's an absolute truth that, uh, that some of the worst pictures of places are taken by guys who are lifelong residents of those places. And so uh, this is one of the reasons why a lot of writers can come to a city, say, like New York, and within a year or so they can turn out a fantastic novel about New York because it's all new and... And uh, they see it. It's a place of wonder. And it's a place of constant uh, amazement. But who, a lifelong resident of Queens, <laughs> he can go up and down the streets and he just never sees it. And it's a fact. So if you were, if you were to go to a guy who's lived all of his life, let's say on a, on a, in a penthouse on Sutton Place, a very elegant place, and say, sir, we'd like you to uh, do a portfolio of magnificent photographs of the city, within five minutes he wouldn't be able to think of anything to shoot. Because it's, you know, so old hat. Oh, who wants to see that? You know, he says, oh, come on. Well, hell, that's just like any other riot. And he sees five guys beating up. Says, oh, who's going to take that? Uh, he sees it every night. But to the outlander, it's very important. So a new manager, brand new assistant manager in this hotel, he noticed, he was puzzled, and he began to notice it, and he began to wonder about it. The elevator carried him to the second floor whenever he pushed the button for the first floor. He pressed the button. For number one, it goes to number two. And he was the only one that noticed it. So he finally uh, said, well, let's, what, what's this all about? Nobody can answer. He said, well, it's the way it is. You know, they got them numbered wrong or something in the elevator there. You just press one. It's actually two, you know. And so he says, wait a minute. Let's, this is kind of silly. Why would they put number two? And they discovered, listen to this. It's almost an impossible-to-believe story. But it actually happened. They finally checked up on it only because this guy kept asking, and they discovered an entire floor of the hotel that had not been used for over 20 years. <laughs> and the floor was behind a locked door. And, and the elevator simply went past it, and, it, and they had over 25 rooms which had not been used for something like 14 or 20 years. 
Now, I just wonder where we got a whole floor in this building that nobody stopped at for over, you know, someday they're going <laughs> to... They're going to stop. Somebody's going to press 14 to see what happens. And it opens up. And here here are these ancient offices with these ancient people who have been mummified because for years something happened to the elevator and never could get out. And here's guys in, in roll-top desks and, you know, <laughs> wind-up telephones, the whole bit. For over 110 years, the 14th floor, 1440 Broadway, has been sealed off. Nobody stopped. Nobody wondered. You know, and this this uh, this is this reminds me of a thing that happened to me. I, I actually had a thing happen to me one time. I, I was when I was working in a lot of radio stations and going to school. You know, and moving around the country and so forth. One time, I I the only time I in my life I have ever rented a house. I've never rent, lived in a house. I always lived in a you know apartment. And so, how I rented this house was one night, late at night, I'm, I'm going to school, and uh, I'm, I'm working in this town, and I'm paying an exorbitant rent <laughs> at, this, at this, uh, this lousy boarding house. You ever stayed in a boarding house? Oh, that's an experience, friend, I want to tell you. And, 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 and it was the only place I could get, see? So they, they, uh, when I got the boarding house, it was something like uh, uh, high rent for what it was. The room, the room actually, I can, uh, some nights, 3 in the morning, I wake up, in a, in a cold sweat, uh, dreaming that I'm back in that room. That this room was so small that when I laid in the bed, they had a little narrow bed. It was like a cot, really. It was just a little narrow bed for one person. You lay on a bed. And I could lay on a bed and touch both walls, just lying flat. I could touch both walls with my hand. And if I stretched my feet out, I could touch the end where the door swung open I could touch the door believe it or not it's hard to believe that's the fact I don't know how they made this room and directly behind me is the other wall so I could lay there stretched out with my feet and I could touch all the walls in this room at one fell swoop now <laughs> where you hung your stuff they had a couple of cabinets hanging from like the ceiling and that's where you put your clothes you see you had stuff like you had to hang your clothes up, and they were long cabinets and went to the ceiling there. And you had to step up on a little platform to get, like, if you had a coat hanging in this thing, see? And that was my room. Well, I paid, like, uh, you know, some terrible, I don't remember the price, but all I know is that I could almost, uh, I, I'd simply take my paycheck that I made every week and gave it to the landlady. And uh, after that, uh, that was the, the extent of it. And you had to, to eat. You know why they call it a boarding house? Because you had to eat there. And there is very few... I think more exotic experiences than eating at a, a table in a boarding house every night with these people. They're total strangers. <laughs> and of course, since they don't know each other, nor do they give a damn one way or the other, that it's as if they're like eating with nobody, they're like they're eating by themselves. So their total slobism comes out. And so you see this elegant gentleman, you know, who comes in there, he's got this gray flannel suit and he's got silver sideburns. He looks like a guy, the kind of guy that plays prime ministers in the Class B movies, you know, that kind of guy. It turns out that he just, yeah, he comes in, sits down, and he ate like a pig. I remember he would lean down over his, his, his cup of soup or whatever it was we would have. And by the way, the soup, uh, boarding house soup is legendary. For those of you who have never tasted boarding house soup, uh, that would be kind of great if if, uh, if Campbell's would come out with a very hip soup. You know, they got all these chunky soups and all that. They early American soup. Be great if they came out with one simply called boarding house soup. And uh, you know, you give people an idea of what life is like out there. Well, boarding house soup 
does not taste like any specific flavor. In other words, when you have soup, you have vegetable soup. What does it taste like? Vegetable soup, right? All right. If you have, uh, say, uh, onion soup, it's supposed to taste like onions. Well, boarding house soup is just non-denominational soup. So <laughs> you, you sit, you sit, and you eat the soup, and you don't really eat the soup because it's a kind of a cloudy, grayish liquid. Is what it is with sort of funny little lumps in it, and you can't quite tell what it is. You you don't really want to ask. So. Uh, since, uh, you know, it's bad enough eating the stuff without knowing what it is. So you sit down there, and you, every night I would say to myself, well, well, uh, they can't have it again tonight. I would always assume that, you know, tonight it's going to be a different thing. Nope, I get this this uh, <laughs> this cra- uh, kind of a crack-looking ball with this gray liquid. Well, this old guy would sit always on the corner t- chair because he wanted to get out real quick, and he'd come in and sit down, and he would eat. Nothing can turn you off quicker than to be sitting with a bunch of slobs eating it. Even if it, when the food is bad and then when the slobs are eating it, it's even worse. So he'd go, and he's dripping the soup all over the, all over this, this tablecloth. And that tablecloth could not afford any more drips, I can tell you this. Of course, it was academic at that point. I mean, it, it had been dripped on, like, for, say, maybe a month and a half before they cleaned it. So, and he would look up, and every time he would go, his eyebrows would go up. Uh, at that point, you know, I, I, I would look down at my soup, this, this gray, curious, uh, non-denominational soup, speaking of which, this is W-O-R in New York. Uh, yes, it is. And by the way, we've got a commercial here before we go any further. Yeah, listen, uh, yes, uh, Virginia, there is a Mr. Chan. And uh, he, uh, yeah, there really is. You, you've seen the uh, sign there for 500 years on the corner of 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. Great Chinese restaurant here in New York. The House of Chan. There is a Mr. Chan. And he started the restaurant 35 years ago, and he is still in firm command. <laughs> and I mean it. And if you would like to try some really great hot Chinese dishes, did you know that they've discovered, and I'm delighted to hear this, that the younger the, uh, the, uh, customer is, the more he's willing to try exotic and hot Chinese dishes, the really interesting Chinese food. He says the older people tend to always say, oh, I like some chop suey. But uh, if you want some really interesting Chinese food, you ask for, for example, gung pao, which is a kind of Chinese chicken. It's really great. This is the House of Chan, and they're on the corner of 7th and 52nd. They're open seven days a week, and they're open to midnight. The House of Chan, 7th and 52nd Street in mid-Manhattan. We stopped the music to start you thinking that the music could stop. Someday, a live concert by the New York Philharmonic may be a thing of the past, because the New York Philharmonic is desperately fighting a crippling deficit, even though it's playing for the enjoyment of more people than ever before. If great music is important to you, please help. Send your contribution, any amount, to the New York Philharmonic, Philharmonic Hall, New York, 10023. Don't let the music stop.
you know that there's a college catalog that I, I have. I keep this in my file of trivia from a school. And oh, they got really mad here a couple of years ago because I mentioned it, and I won't mention them tonight. But they know who they are. There's a college uh, in this area that, believe it or not, gives credit for a course in lunchmanship. You know what lunchmanship is, Al? You know, how to go to a lunch. I mean, you know, a business lunch, you know. <laughs> they recognize the fact that almost all the business today, in New York especially, is done over lunches. You can always tell when you're, you know, when you're really making it big with, with some guy, he'll ask you to lunch. That means, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's working. So now you can get a three-credit-hour course in lunchmanship. And I suppose every day they have uh, lab courses, I'm sure, that they one day you come in, the classroom is, uh, has been clever to disguise to look like a little east-side French bois, you know, how to order uh, uh, wine. Uh, how, to, how, <laughs> how to get the most out of your out of your expense account. Then, of course, the next day you come in and it's disguised as a little uh, Lower West Side colorful Italian restaurant. And uh, I don't know exactly how it works, but you get three credit hours for lunchmanship. And I did this thing on the air here a year or two ago. Oh, the college got very mad. <laughs> they demanded that I retract the statement. And uh, so I wrote to the place and I said, well, it's in your catalog. What do you mean, retract the statement? I never heard from him again. Tracked his statement. But uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, I, I uh, going back to that, that the boarding house, I don't know why I'm telling you this story. I don't think I've ever told the story about this boarding house because, it, you know, it's one of those things you block out of your mind. There's certain bad periods in your life that you just, you don't want to hear about anyway. <laughs> just the curtain rings down and that's the end of it. But that one boarding house summer, I remember like, like a, oh, like a bad tooth. Uh, like some kind of a bad scene. It was much worse than anything I ever had in the Army because it was so depressing. And and you couldn't get out of it. And they had all kinds of rules. And that's another good thing about boarding houses. Like, uh, you can't play a radio over uh, after 7.30 p.m. Well, of course, it's because Mrs. Appleroth in room 902... Uh, goes to sleep at 7.15. Either that or her cat goes to sleep at 9.15. And she's, uh, you know, the sister-in-law of the owner of the place, and so you can't turn your radio on after 7.30. Uh, there will be no loud noises of any type occurred after 6 p.m. above the first floor. Well, what does a loud noise consist of? Well, one day, I found, believe it or not, one day I got I got a note under my door saying that if I didn't cut out those loud noises that I was having, that my, my, uh, my luggage would be out on the street and I would forfeit my rent uh, for that week. You know what the loud noises were? Well, that week I had a cold, and I found myself coughing occasionally, and that was disturbing uh, Mrs. Uh, Needleman, who uh, lived down by the John. And by the way, Mrs. Needleman spent that entire summer in the bathroom, uh, we had only one to our floor. And that's all, another part of the elegant uh, life of the boarding house, is that who gets there first owns it. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the rest of you, you could just stand on one foot and stand on the other foot and then cross your legs, jump up and down, and finally run down to the shell station down at the end of the block. Who, by the way, got very hip to that. He realized that all these people coming in were coming down from the boarding house, and uh, he would not give the key. You know the little key that says men's room. He wouldn't give the key to anybody unless they drove the car in. <laughs> so when you'd get really desperate, I would go down and get my car to the parking lot, drive around, and come in like I'm a customer, you know. 
Uh, so you, you get this is boarding house life. These are all little things that uh, that you have to live with in the boarding house. Then of course there's there's, uh, there's other things. For example, invariably boarding houses are uh, are run by by people who are unbelievably deficient in imagination. I don't know what it is about boarding house people. People who run boarding houses, second-rate motels, and tenth-rate hotels all have something in common. They seem to love battleship gray. Everything is painted this gray. <laughs> it's a kind of a... Yeah, and it seems to be standard in these places. Uh, I, is, 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 is blue paint more expensive than gray, Al? You, you must know about these things. It isn't? You mean you, all these years I've been under the wrong impression that they, they painted them gray because it was cheaper? I see. It is cheaper. Well, I, I'm, they must have bought, you know, like 12 million gallons of surplus paint from the Navy. <laughs> they could have gotten that. But uh, here I am in my room every night, and I'm getting desperate. I'm going up the walls. I'll tell you, this is, uh, just, uh, oh, and the phone, that's another thing. You must realize you do not have a phone in your room when you're in a boarding house. Don't confuse boarding houses with, with motels or hotels. No, no. The phone is downstairs in Mrs. Clevenger's parlor. Mrs. Clevenger ran the boarding house. The phone is downstairs, and she lets it known to you very quickly that that is her phone. That is not the phone of the boarding house. It's her phone. And so you do not go down and, you know, pick up the phone and call, call your friends, nor do you have them call in. So there's no phone in this boarding house. And uh, there are other things. Heat, for example. Uh, there are always large numbers of elderly ladies and elderly gentlemen who live in boarding houses. And due to the fact that their bones have been ossified for over maybe 50 years at this point, they need excessive amounts of heat. So uh, it is forbidden to open any windows in the boarding house unless Mrs. Clevenger personally gives you her permission. And so I would come into this boarding house. It's 120 degrees. And there's that, that, that curious aroma of a mortuary about it. I don't know what it is that, that old people carry around with it. There's a strange aroma of, of elderly, uh, archaic perfumes. You know, the kind of perfumes that ladies must have worn to Civil War balls with this, you know, odd things like jasmine perfume. Uh, you could smell the rug, and th there was this curious smell of disinfectant. Uh, I don't know how the disinfectant got in there because they, you, you never—I never got into the John actually, so I don't know where that was used. But you could smell a, a smell that vaguely resembled elderly mothballs. Yes, uh, and and I would lie in my sack in this 110 degree temperature. Oh, and they had fixed the window. That's another thing. It had a window in my room. And the window had been fixed so that I could not open it. I tried the first two nights. I thought maybe I'll, I'll, I'll cheat, you know, I'll open the window. It, it, at the end of the third night, I realized that the window was actually sunken in concrete. They had a concrete casement. Anyway, no way to open that window, because I figured they thought you were going to jump out, you know, climb down four floors to cheat Mrs. Clevenger out of the $8 rent, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. So you couldn't get out of this place. Once you got in, you were in, you know. So I, I, I remember this night. I, I, I finally got up, you know, really uptight. And I couldn't stand it. So I got up. It's hot. The temperature's 110 degrees in this place. i got to have some life. And I could hear elderly sounds once in a while, like the creak of something. And uh, once in a while, you'd hear a faint voice going, whoosh, 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 off in the distance. I, I felt like, oh, my God. If, if anybody ever wants to write a play, um, you know, the Tennessee Williams, William Inge-type play, 
He could set it in one of these these decaying boarding houses in a tacky street in a, in a Midwestern city, like, say, Toledo. And that happened to be where it was going on, where this scene was happening, see. So I'm, I'm sitting, sitting in, the, in the room, and I sit up on my bed. I had no chair in it. You had to sit on a bed. I mean, if we had a chair, if you had a chair, you had to move the bed out. So I'm sitting on a bed, and my feet are on the floor, and I'm looking down at this curious uh, fuzzy carpet that was, had no known color. It was just a carpet. And I could smell the paint and the disinfectant and those voices and the creaking. And I could smell the aroma of the soup, that curious soup. It always smelled like that soup in that house. All this stuff was all mixed up. And the food itself was another thing. Past the soup, I should have told you a little bit about the food. Every night we had something which Mrs. Clevenger called meat. And it was gray. I don't know what it was exactly. It had, a, it had what looked like melted, you know... Well, do you remember when you were a kid and you used to have this paste, this white paste that you used to use in school, library paste? Well, they had stuff that looked a little bit like melted library paste over the meat. And that was called, Mrs. Clevenger called it sauce. That was called sauce. Had no taste at all. It was just a curious whitish, grayish fluid that would be on this stuff. And the, the, the vegetable, we always had a vegetable. Well, I, I again, this is, this is something I've never been able to understand. Are Brussels sprouts cheap or what? Well, I didn't think they were either. I, I, I don't know. I don't see them very often. But uh, we, she seemed to have a secret source of Brussels sprouts. So we always had Brussels sprouts, this gray meat, and mashed potatoes. That was our, our meal every night. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then, then she also had this fluid, which she referred to as coffee. She never really called it coffee. She always called it beverage. Anybody that refers to what you're drinking as beverage, be careful because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to go on a limb and say what it is. But it was this dark brown stuff that was kind of bitter. And so we would sit there every night. Oh, we always, oh, yes, dessert. You, you, you want to know what dessert was every night? Well, I formed a lasting, lifelong antipathy, if not outright hate, for bread pudding. Now, I'm sure that there must be good bread pudding around. I'm sure there must be. I, I, uh, I, uh, I, don't, I don't try it. I refuse to have anything to do with bread pudding. And people have told me that this place, has, you know, this place and that place has great bread pudding. I will not even talk about bread pudding. I will also, by the way, not eat uh, a cream chip beef. Uh, I never refuse. I don't care how elegantly it comes, au potage, au croissant. I will not have anything to do with it. But uh, we had bread pudding every night. And so night after night, we would sit and have our bread pudding, and I would have my gray meat, and I would pick it at sea. It's a great way to go on a diet. Any of you are interested in, in, in losing weight, I mean, you know, the Weight Watch, all these people got these schemes. And uh, I, I would only like to suggest that one of the best ways that I know of to really lose weight is to, is to go to any boarding house. Just see what says boarding house. Put down one month's rent and sentence yourself only to eat at the boarding house for that month. And I can assure you, friend, at the end of the month, you will have lost weight. Either that or you will, if you're a total pig, it would make no difference, you will have gotten fantastically fat because boarding house food runs to this kind of, you know, very starchy, gray, uh, pasty stuff. So I'm sitting there on the edge of my bed that night. And, and I looked down, and I was broke. I'm going to tell you, I was broke. Oh, was I, I was really... Uh, I mean, it was Tap City all the way. 
And I was having a bad time. I mean, financially, I was scrabbling. So I'm sitting there on the edge of this bed, and I can't get out of this joint because the next, the previous day, there had been two days before, I'd been going around looking for other places where I might be able to go. You see, get out of this. I couldn't stand it any longer. Like, a, you know, just to rent a, a couch in the, in the uh, lobby of the YMCA, maybe. Something like that. Get out of this place. Well, I had paid my rent to the end of the week. And I couldn't give it up. <laughs> I couldn't give it up. Like, you know, I had about $6 more of squatting and, and terrible food coming to me. So I'm sitting on the edge of this bunk, and I'm really depressed. And I, I, I had very little belongings. You know, I had about, the, you know, two shirts. I had a couple of pair of chino pants. That was about it. And it was summertime, hot. See, I didn't have any winter clothes or anything like that. And I had my one sport coat which I had. That was my great sport coat. That was it. That was my clothing. And I'm sitting there looking at my clothing, my worldly possessions, and I can smell the Brussels sprouts. And I can hear Mrs. Needleman's cat down there. Once in a while, Mrs. Needleman's cat would start scratching at the ca- at the carpet. I could hear that scratching. And and uh, it just began to get me. Just uh, There are moments in your life where you just got to do something. You know, you just got to move out. You got to move. You got to go just got to move. So I says, I got to go. I got no money. I got to go. I got to get out of this place. So I, I stood up on the little platform and I took all my, my earthly belongings, my sport coat, my extra pair of chinos, which I got at the Army Surplus Store for three ninety eight. I took down my, my two JCPenney $1.98 shirts and uh, my tie, my one tie. And it was all wash and wear, see. I couldn't afford any laundry or anything like that, see. So I, I had this suitcase. Believe it or not, I had bought a suitcase at Woolworth. Have you ever seen the suitcase? They actually have w- suitcases, and it was made out of, like, fake leather that was pressed out of cardboard is what it was. And you got to carry it very carefully, this <laughs> particular suitcase, or else the handle just pour it. You know, it's just a paper suitcase what it is. got to be careful, so... I, I, I take my suitcase, I open it up, and I put my stuff in the suitcase. And I clicked it shut. I got up, and I walked out, and down the hall I went. And sure enough, the, the I just thought I'd try before I leave, just to, to see whether, it, you know, <laughs> one last try. Of course, the john is locked, and I can hear the water running in there. It's been locked with the water running in there with Mrs. Needleman or... <laughs> old, old, old Mr. Old Mr. Gruber, by the way, all of those names, and and Gruber was either in there, and they would shift, they would try change off. Uh, Gruber and Mrs. Needleman would change off. You know, you have the John from uh, seven in the morning until one in the afternoon. I'll take it over at one, and I'll hold it down until five in the afternoon. Then you can come on the night shift, and you hold it down until two in the morning, right? And so you never got in. I just tried the door on the way just to see whether it's whether it's uh, still locked. And sure enough, and I walked down the steps the staircase down to the bottom floor where uh, Mrs. Clevenger lived in, the, in the Victorian splendor. And she, she had it all going there, see. And I could smell the night's, uh, uh, the night's uh, <laughs> Brussels sprouts, the night's bread pudding cooking away there. And I, I, I walked into this heat, and she loved the hot. And she had ferns. That's another, you know that I have, I have formed an intense hatred for ferns? Due to the fact that Mrs. Clevenger had down on the ground floor, she had ferns all the way around, and these, you know, these wicker things that stand up on four legs, 
with with ferns. I, I somehow the smell of ferns. You know they have a smell. You know that curious acrid smell. The smell of ferns and geraniums. I always she had geraniums. I always associate with that lousy, damn, crummy boarding house and those old ladies sitting down. And they always looked at me very suspiciously when I came down the steps because they always thought, you know, here was this guy, this young, unmarried type. Obviously, this unbelievable stuff goes up. He must have fantastic... He must have women that come in and climb in over the top of the ceiling, you know, and come down off the roof, which was eight stories above me, climbed down. Somehow, they had these illusions that I was doing these things. They'd look at me every time I come through. So I've got my suitcase, and I start leaving. And Mrs. Clevenger spots me. I was hoping to get out, see, without just clean. I wanted to go. See, I was paid up till Saturday, remember. This is like Wednesday. And she says, where are you going? She says, you have your bag. And I said, yes, uh, Mrs. Clevenger. I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd, uh... see, because she thought we were one happy family. And by the way, that's what Mrs. Clevenger would always say at dinner time when we would sit down to the... And we'd have noodles once in a while. She had boiled noodles in place of the Brussels sprouts. And uh, once in a while, she would say, it's kind of nice for all of us here to be one happy family and enjoying the fruits of the Lord. She always talked about the fruits of the Lord. And uh, I, I, I developed a terrible antipathy to, uh, to the fruits of the Lord. And in fact, the, the whole concept of religion, because they were very religious too in this house. They had crucifixes and, you know, pictures and stuff around the walls of the Last Supper. And, well, I was at the feeling that I was sitting down at the Last Supper when I would sit there at this, this boarding house. I don't know why I'm telling this sordid story. <laughs> I've never told this story. I'll guarantee you, you've never heard this story. But uh, because it's, it's a part of my life I just, uh, you know, kind of blocked out. I was only there for about eight weeks. But let me tell you, time, according to Albert Einstein, is relative, and you better believe it that eight weeks in that boarding house was like 120 years of, say, life, normal, rotten life. And so I, I, I'm walking out with this sack. You know, I got my little Woolworth bag with the imitation alligator skin cardboard. And she says, you're leaving. I said, well, I didn't want to break it, though. You know, somehow I had this curious feeling. Have you ever had this feeling of being, of having loyalty to something you hate. Now, why would I have any feeling? Why would I feel like I don't want to hurt her feelings? Like, yeah, I'm leaving. Uh, thank you. I've, you've got the money to Friday or Wednesday or whatever it is, and uh, it's okay. You can check the room. You'll find that I didn't steal the, uh, that, uh, that gray carpet, nothing. <laughs> you know, the lock is still there. You know? and so I felt, I felt funny like I was telling her something terrible, and I wanted to sort of get out so that she wouldn't know I was leaving putting her down. And the other old ladies are rocking back and forth, sitting around her there, and Mr. Groover snorting around upstairs. He always blew his nose. He had a big thing on blowing his nose. There's certain old guys that love to blow their nose. And they carry these big white handkerchiefs. You ever seen that type? Yeah, they kind of go, honk, honk. They blow their nose, you know, it's, a, it's a, like a rutting bull elephant, you know, right in season. Seeing them, honk. He'd blow his nose. I used to hear that nose blowing. And he'd honk his nose for about an hour before supper time, and then he would honk it about an hour after supper time. And that was part of the scene. I can hear Groover up there honking away. And I can hear Mrs. Needleman's cat scratching on the wall. And I can hear the water running in the john upstairs, where Mrs. Needleman has been holding forth now for, well, since before 2 o'clock that afternoon. And I could smell the rose gentian perfume and the aphids on the, on the, on the ferns, and I can smell the... the the, you know, the, 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 the 
the flowers and, the, and, and it, there was a smell and you know have you ever noticed too there's another curious smell that I would like to ask you to, to recall if you will have you ever stood very close to lace curtains and smelled them you know that smell of lace curtains it's a curious sharp smell I hard to describe it's a smell that's a, a kind of musty and, and decaying cloth and we had lace curtains all over downstairs. And so there I am among the lace curtains and the, the, the geraniums and among the aphids and the, 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 the fern plants. And Mrs. Clevenger, she had wax fruit. That was another thing. I hate wax fruit. She had, I've developed a lot of antipathies, and she had, she had this round table, and on the round table was a, a lace tablecloth, which she would always be sitting by, reading some obscure book, on theology. She was always reading the collected sermons of uh, ministers that had three names, like the Reverend Clarence W. S Warren Seastrunk, ESQ, Esquire, DDL, DSG. And uh, she's reading these sermons. And I'm trying to get out, and Mrs. Clevenger looked up at me in these watery blue eyes and said, You're leaving. And I said, uh, Well, uh, I just got a. Uh, a uh, a telegram, and, and uh, I have to go back home. I, I've got to go go back home, <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't expect it. Oh, you're paid up to Saturday. We can't refund that, you know. I said, "Oh, oh that's that's perfectly all right, Mrs. Clevenger. <laughs> I, uh, I certainly uh, I agree. I said that, and I and uh, don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I start to edge out, and she she persisted. Then she said, "Boy, oh, is there trouble at home?" Because in her world, a telegram always means the end of the world. You get a telegram, that means lightning has struck Uncle Howard. And uh, <laughs> come quick. Uh, that kind of thing. So she says, is that trouble at home? I said, oh, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Just uh, uh, something I've got to get home. <laughs> i got to get back. i got to take care of uh, something. It's, uh, no problem. No problem at all. Well, you can tell us, you know. We're your friends, and we certainly will. We will. We'd like to help if we, if we may. There's trouble. Now, you please tell us. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Well, she could tell I was lying. The trouble had nothing to do with home. It was, it was, I, felt, I was feeling rotten about getting out, you know, and telling her this stuff. So I said, well, no, that's all right, Mrs. Clevenger. I, I'll take care of it. The, you know what? After all, uh, uh, it, it, by the way, she loves slogans. And so all over her, her, she called them mottos, and they were stitched in cross-stitch. And all around in the room, you had things like, uh, like uh, old things like, uh, God is with us. Uh, things like, uh, bless our humble home. She had all these things, see. So I knew that the, the only way to get to her is to uh, pop out a slogan. So I said, oh, don't worry about it, Mrs. Uh, Clevenger. <laughs> uh, it's all right, it's all right. Uh, into each life, some rain must fall. <laughs> Well, of course, she understood that. Thing. Oh, yes, it's true. Into each life some rain must fall. Well, yes, I always say that uh, that you must learn to take the bitter with the sweet. Is that what you say, Ethel? That's true. You must learn to take the bitter with the sweet. And uh, I always say that uh, that uh, there's no cloud, no gray cloud, but what it does not have a silver lining. <laughs> yes. And uh, you remember that when you're going home and, and uh, you've taken care of the... Is it your poor mother? 
Well, I thought maybe I'd get away with it. I said, yeah, you know, it's, it, it is Ma. Yes, it's true. Oh, I was afraid of that. I was afraid of that. So I tell you what. Oh, I certainly, I remember when my, more, my poor mother passed away. I'll never forget. I was living just outside of Niles, Michigan at the time. And uh, I remember that I had received a telegram that my mother, I was going that time to nursing school. I was a nurse, you know, when I was younger. And I received a telegram, and I traveled by day coach for two days. We lived in Fargo, you know, and the Dakotas, and we traveled all the way there, and it was too late. And my mother had gone, and I've never forgotten myself for that. And Ethel and I tonight will pray for your good mother, and we will pray for you. So... That's not necessary. <laughs> oh, no, no. No, Ethel, we'd be pleased to pray for you, good mother. Would you please tell us what her name is? I said, well, her name is... Uh, I couldn't think of a name I was going to tell. You know, I didn't want the... I didn't want, if there was a... You know, if there was a God, I didn't want him to get this flim-flam stuff, so I thought of a name. See, I said, uh, well, her name is... Uh, uh, well, it's Clara. <laughs> I took one of my hands. Oh, Clara, what a nice name. It's certainly nice... Yes, uh, we will pray for your good mother, Clara, tonight. I said, well, thank you very much. I've got to catch the, uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, 602, and I'll see you there. And so I took my suitcase and out on the porch, and I walked down the street. And about halfway down the street, I started to run. I just couldn't help it. I was afraid somebody was going to get me. And I made the first turn I could. You know, I turned right, and off I went. And I could still smell it. It was in my nostrils. It was in my... It was in my suitcase. It was in my clothes. The smell of that... Of that... That Brussels sprout smell. That smell of... Of bread pudding. And the smell of battleship gray paint and jasmine perfume. The smell of... Of... Ferns. The smell of geraniums. And the smell of the mottos on the wall. And I, I imagined late that night, and by the way, where I stayed that night, I did. I stayed in the lobby of the YMCA. I told them, you know, I'm waiting for a call or something, and I stayed down there. And the next morning, bleary-eyed, I struggled off, and I finally got another place. But all that night, I imagined I could hear voices, that we would like to pray for, for the mother of that, that young man, Clara. Yes, wherever she might be tonight. And Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Clevenger and Mrs. Needleman and Ethel all sitting around down there on the ferns, quietly praying for a non-existent victim of the vicissitudes of life. Mm-hmm.